Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. So in this week, I listened to a sermon from Henny um, from a few weeks ago. And I maybe also just want to start out by, by honoring Henny. You know, there's uh, this writer called A.W. Tozer who said that the most important thing about a person is what that person thinks about when they think about God. And um, Henny has really helped me, and I'm sure a lot of you, in the way that I think about God, the way that I approach the Bible and its reading. So Henny, thank you for that. It's really, it's changed my life, and I'm so thankful for my time here in Johannesburg, partly because of that. So thanks. Um, and the second thing is, in that sermon, I listened to it, and I realized that uh, it's, it's very, very similar to the sermon I'm preaching tonight, a, a very similar message, but that gets me excited because it tells me that maybe God wants to tell us something. Um, so let's get into it. So who of you know that people oftentimes marveled at Jesus, right? They marveled at the things that he did, so the works and the miracles and the wonders. And they also marveled at the things that he said, because he was not afraid to call a spade a spade, to speak the truth straight. And uh, sometimes that offended people. And Jesus also marveled at people. He oftentimes marveled at the unbelief um, of the disciples, right? But there are, as far as I know, two accounts where um, Jesus marveled at the faith of another person. Can anyone anyone tell me where that is? The lady with the issue of blood? Okay, that's actually one I didn't have, but that's a very good point. Yes, the centurion, right? And the Syrophoenician woman was the other one, where the Syrophoenician woman had, her daughter had a demon. So we're going to look at the account of the centurion today, the faith of the centurion or the healing of the centurion's servant. So if you have your Bibles with me, please page to Luke 7. It's actually captured twice, but we're going to look at the account in Luke 7. And let's read together. I think it's up on the screen as well. Okay, so it says, Now when he, that's Jesus, had concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying, that the one for whom he should do this was worthy. And now it quotes them. They said, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority having soldiers uh, under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd who followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. So maybe just a little bit of context. In Jesus' time, um, Israel had been conquered by Rome. And Rome had set up kind of like a satellite state in Israel. We read about another guy called Herod, the Tetrarch. I think I've got no idea what that means, but that's his full title. Um, Herod the Tetrarch, and he was king over the area. Um, But even he was kind of a king that was still subordinate to Caesar. So he still had to to do the will of Caesar. And Rome also had these agents all around Israel, um, which it put there to enforce its will. And the centurion was one of these, right? 
And the Jews really didn't like this. They didn't want to be ruled by Rome. It was kind of an oppressive, uh, an oppressive rule which, room, which Rome had over them because they conquered them. Uh, we read in another place that the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, they ask him, Teacher, tell us, is it lawful to, play, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And the tax it's talking about there was not just normal um, taxes that you pay to government. It was what was known as the poll tax, which was like a tax which you got to pay for the honor, and I put honor in inverted commas, of being ruled by Rome. So to the Jews, this would have been a little bit of like a slap in the face, right? Because you've got to pay for something which you really don't want. And the Jews even believed that the Messiah, when he was going to come back, he would be a ruling and a reigning Messiah who would liberate them from Roman rule so that they can have, again, their own state, their own leaders. And you can imagine the type of tension that this created within that society, right? The Jews and the Romans were not on the friendliest terms. But here, even within that context, we see a centurion of who the Jews themselves say he was a man who loved um, our people. And Jesus, when he sees the faith of this man, turns around and says to Jews who had the law of God, who had the, the oracles of God, as Paul says, um, and, and should have had the, re- the revelation of God, I've not found faith like I'm seeing in this man, even in Israel, even amongst by implication, you, you know. And um, what that tells me is that there's something here that we can emulate. Because I don't know about you, but it would be epic if Jesus marveled at my faith, right? <laughs> that would be like bucket list of note. Um, so we're going to look at the centurion today. We're going to look at his life and at three aspects of him. Firstly, the heart of the centurion, which means like his makeup, who he was and what he was like the acts of the centurion, and finally, the faith of the centurion. So this passage reveals to us a few things about what the centurion was like. And the first is right at the start, it tells us that he had a servant that was very dear to him. And the better translation is slave. The word there is dolos, which means a slave that was dear to him. Because in those days, you had the slave system where masters of households would go out and they would physically buy slaves for their household um, with money. And that slave would become like an asset in the house. And they didn't have the same rights and privileges that, that members of the household have. While preparing for the sermon, I read that in various places that uh, mistreatment or maltreatment of slaves was, was relatively commonplace in those days. But even for Romans, um, it wasn't completely unacceptable that if your slave became useless to you, so if they became old or sick and they couldn't fulfill their duties, some Roman uh, masters would kill their slaves. They would have them killed. So you... As a slave, your fate was kind of solely dependent on who your master was. If your master was a good master, he would look after you and take care of you. But if your master was a bad master, there wasn't any you know, legal system or human rights in place that was going to come and help you. And um, here we see someone who not only does it say that he wasn't that type of evil master, he had a servant who was dear to him. He had a servant that he cared about, but he actually goes out of his way and even sacrifices to help his servant who couldn't help himself. And that tells us something about him. Later, it also says that the Jews, when they came to Jesus, they said to him, this man is deserving because he loves our people and he built us a synagogue. And you can easily read past that and kind of Um, I I know I read past it a long time and didn't click it completely, but when I was thinking about how to to create an analogy to kind of um, talk about the significance of this, the story that came to mind for me was the story of the Titus family. Heinrich Titus is our global 
um, leader, a shofar and his dad. I have no idea what his dad's name is. I've always called him Albert. Okay, I've always heard him referred to as Um Titus. So I call him Um Titus, but I'll call him Albert Titus. So Albert Titus grew up um, in apartheid, which is also uh, very much like here, a time where one group was exercising an oppressive authority over, over other groups. And he grew up on a, on a grape farm in the Western Cape. And in that day, it was practiced that farmers paid um, at least partially their, their, their laborers in alcohol, a system known as the tot system or the dorpstelsel. And you can imagine the type of social and domestic issues that that created in those farm worker communities with just generational dependency on alcohol and, and all the issues that come with that. It probably also made it a lot easier to maintain that, that oppressive type of authority. But this farmer um, who Wim Titus or Albert Titus, uh, grew, the, the, the farmer to whom the farm belonged that he grew up on, um, got saved. He gave his heart to Jesus. And he realized that he couldn't continue like this because what he was doing was wrong. So the first thing he did was he stopped farming grapes and he planted apples on his farm, which for the area that he lived in was unheard of. And um, other farmers really ridiculed him about that. And he also started, and he stopped enforcing the, the tot system with that. And he also started um, opening the doors for the gospel to be preached on his farm. He uh, set up a mission station and missionaries would come in and they would have these outreach events where they would preach the gospel to the local communities. And at one of these events, um, Albert Titus attended and he heard the gospel and gave his life to Jesus. And at that time, because of financial reasons, he was still in, in primary school and he had to stop studying um, and start working part-time and, and, and study through the post. And this farmer, whose name was Kubis Leroux, was helping him along the way and eventually he was able to actually go to university and study theology. Um, and in his final year, Kubis uh, Leroux gave him a vehicle with which he could do his practical work um, and travel for that. And then he got ordained as a minister and he started serving in communities all over the country. And if you've met um, Wim Titus or you've heard his stories, you would know that God used him mightily um, in some of those communities to bring the kingdom and to bring freedom in people's lives. And also his family has a legacy. I mean, I don't know all his children, but I know Heinrich, who was pastor here for a few years and is now our global leader as, as shofar. And I mean, he's a, he's a man of God who's really anointed as a, as a leader and he's humble. And when I listen to him, I'm always challenged you know, by, by the type of maturity and, and the anointing that God has put in his life. And that legacy was possible by the grace of God and also the grace of God working through a man like Kubis Leroux, who went completely against the grain, who chose to use the authority that he had, um, which was an oppressive authority, um, not to just get his own personal benefit and gain, but actually to help those under him who couldn't help himself. And that's kind of what I see when I look at this centurion. Um, he had an authority which he used to serve in his community, to serve um, people who would have not had the status that he had. Then the acts of the centurion, the Jews also say that he built them um, a synagogue. So we know that the centurion used his physical resources, his finances, um, to build the kingdom in the community where, where he was. The passage doesn't give us explicit detail, but we can kind of infer um, that he was also a God-fearer, especially from the way that he responds to Jesus and recognizes the divinity on Jesus' life. And it's possible that he also attended that synagogue um, with some of his... I read one commentary that said some of his soldiers would have gone with him, probably because, you know, I don't know if it would have been out of fear or whatever, but that's a, a good thing. So he probably attended it with, um, with some of his soldiers. 
And um, it also says that he uses influence with the Jewish elders um, to get help for his servant. Now, I'm reading a book. I have been reading it for about a year because it's like this thick by Leo Tolstoy called War and Peace. And um, in that book, there's this one scene in, in Moscow where the high society of Moscow have come together and they're having a party. And it's all the kind of upper-class people and they're trying to be seen with one another and, 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 and vying for position. But there's this one widow who has a son, right? And she's desperate because her family lost everything and she realizes that she needs to get away of, of opening a door for her son into a good position. Otherwise, he's not going to amount to anything. And she goes to this guy called Prince Vasily, and she says, you've got to put in a good word um, with, with the emperor for my son because we're desperate. And she keeps begging him. Eventually, he's like, no, no, no. And then he, he gives in, and he says, yes, he's going to do it. But there's this quote from, from Tolstoy in the book which really stuck with me uh, where, where he says, influence in the world is a capital which has to be used with economy if it is to last. Prince Vasily knew this and knew that if he kept asking favors for others, he would eventually not be able to ask anything for himself. In other words, influence is something which is limited, and you have to be wise in how you use it. But we see that the centurion uses his influence with the Jewish elders, which would have been a complicated relationship in itself, not to get himself into a better political position or get himself into favor with Caesar, but instead he spends it on helping his servant and getting him um, to the one who can heal him, even though he couldn't give him anything in return. And then finally, the, the faith of the centurion. So I want you to notice that when the centurion comes to Jesus, he doesn't do so in, in arrogance or pomp. He does so in humility. He was a Roman citizen, which means he had certain rights um, that, that Jews wouldn't have in those in those communities, um, there's a, I think it's in Matthew 5, 14, where Jesus says in one of his teachings, if someone asks you to go with him one mile, go with him two, right? We know, we know that. But I believe what he was referring to was there was these Roman laws of compulsion that if a Roman soldier came to you and said, you have to carry my stuff one mile, you have to do it because otherwise you're going to go to jail, you know? Or if he said, saddle up my horses or do whatever, even if it was a great inconvenience to um, to the person he was inferring it on, you had to do it by law to help Roman soldiers. Um, and also, he would have had status in that society um, which, which the Jews wouldn't have had. I mean, Jesus was a teacher, and he had a lot of influence with, with the Jewish people, but this was also a man who was in a position of military authority. He had a, a hundred soldiers under him. He had military power at his expense. But what he does is when he comes to Jesus, he doesn't rely on any of that. Right? The Jews, when they come, they say, this man is deserving. He is worthy because he has done this and this and this. But when he himself sends friends um, to Jesus, he says, Lord, I am not worthy. And it's amazing, it's amazing what he actually says because he goes, I understand authority. I've got people under me. I know I can say to my servant, go there, and he goes there, or to my soldier, do this, and he does it. But therefore, you speak the word. In other words, I also realize that my authority is limited because what my servant needs, my authority cannot achieve. I cannot. There is a, a natural limitation to the authority that I have, but you, by implication, do not have those natural limitations. You have a spiritual authority that passes those bounds. Therefore, he doesn't appeal to him through his own good works or his status or his standard, but he appeals to his grace and to his mercy and says, Lord, I am not worthy, but you speak the word, 
and it will be done. And I just kind of want to contrast this. Um, and then, of course, Jesus honors that. He says, wow, I've not seen faith like this, not even in Israel. Now, I want to contrast that to the type of faith or what I today oftentimes heard of, spoken of as faith. Because more than once in the past, while I've heard faith kind of spoken of as something which we need to conjure up. And if we get enough of it, if we get it to like the proper faith level, then whatever we believe for or whatever we want is possible, right? And the scary thing is I don't just hear that in the church. I also hear it in the world, except it carries a different label, something like the power of positive thinking. You just envision it. You just believe that you will be able to, to live a certain life or achieve a certain standard, and it will be yours. I was at a, at a work seminar um, a while back where a guy in so much words basically said, the reason I'm not earning like 500,000 rand or a million rand a month is because I'm not thinking like someone who earns 500,000 rand a month. But if I were to think like that, the universe would position itself around me, I guess, you know, to get me into that, that position. And how different is that from what we see here? The, 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 the other part of it, of course, which they don't often talk about so much, is then if you don't get your breakthrough or your miracle or your healing or your financial provision, then it's because you didn't believe hard enough. Then it's on you, effectively. Right? It's works-based. And how different is that from what we see in the centurion where he says, Lord, I know that this is outside of the sphere of my ability. I know that my authority does not go there, but you have ultimate authority. And I am not worthy, but you can still help me. And that is, that is what I appeal to. And you know, the, the scary thing is that, I guess with all deception, by definition, it's deceptive, Right? <laughs> that's, that's why they call it deception. The, the lie oftentimes runs so, runs so close to the truth. The Jewish elders, when they come to Jesus, they say to him, Lord, this man is deserving because he, has, he loves our people and he built us a synagogue. In other words, what he has done qualifies him for your help. What he has done qualifies him for the miracle which, which, you, which he is trusting you for. And when, when he sends friends to him, he says, Lord, I am not worthy. They're looking at the same works, right? The centurion knows what he's done, but their interpretation of the position that that places them in is different. And I think it's, it's, it's scary that on the outside, whether you are operating from either of these mindsets, it, it could look the same. If you think that earning um, your salvation or earning the favor of God is possible, you might work really hard. You could do all the right things. You could work harder than those around you. Um, out of that place of, of saying that, you know, if I, just, if I just do enough, if I just believe enough, if I just expend enough effort, then I will be in God's favor and then I will get him to do what, what I want him to do. And he said it so well, I can't remember who the guy is who you quoted, but where he said that faith is opposed to earning, not to effort, right? Because we cannot earn God's favor through our, um, through our effort. We've already got God's favor. But if we operate out of a place of thanksgiving where we realize that what Jesus has done for us is already complete, that we cannot add to it, that we cannot um, win his favor through our works, and we operate out of that place of thanksgiving, the works might look very much similar. But the motivation of the heart 
is very different. I was um, in Ukraine recently for a, a scouting mission trip. And we were four guys who traveled with a man called Johnny Bell and his wife, uh, Delesti Bell. They were in our Franchuk congregation. And right after the Soviet Union um, fell apart, God spoke to them and told them to, to go over to Ukraine. Um, so they, saw, they had pharmacy practices at the time, and they sold their pharmacy practices. And they went over and they started a Bible school in, in Kiev, which is the capital. And people from all over the country came, and they were trained up as pastors and as church planters in this, in this Bible school in Kiev. And then after their training, they dispersed around the country and they planted a whole lot of churches. What also happened was right after the collapse of the Soviet Union, economic times were a little bit tough in Ukraine. So um, Johnny Bell and his team also came back and they started connecting um, Dutch Reformed churches here with, with pastors on that side to, provide, to help them financially. And um, he's getting quite old now. He's 81 years old. I'm still young in spirit. He kept up with everything that, that we did and walked long distances on this trip. But he's starting to get older now, so he wants to hand over some of those relationships so that they can, can continue with some of the shofar churches. He actually had three groups, which he took along now. Um, and when we were there, uh, we went around and we visited some of these pastors who were part of the original Bible school, which they planted. And we got to this one city, which is like in the middle of of Ukraine. It's called Dnieper, and it's the third largest city in Ukraine, next to the Dnieper River, which runs through the whole country. Um, and there we visited a pastor called Sil- uh, Sergei Tsolko. And this was one of the original guys who had been um, in the Bible school. And you know, when we got there um, to him, and we were the second group that, that they had received already with from Johnny, but every time when Johnny comes, he really like, he takes out the best. Like, as we say in Afrikaans, I all ate in vice. You know, he books um, Johnny into either a five-star hotel or something similar. They took us to this three-story Russian spa. They call it a banya um, on the first day we were there. And if I think you guys have been in Ukraine, right? So a Russian banya is an experience, guys. If there is a very large Russian man beating you with, like, these palm sticks, you know you've got the full Ukrainian, yeah, exactly, experience. Um, so that was amazing. And we had actually said beforehand, even now, because of the war, there's a bit of an economic downturn. So we want to pay as much as we can for ourselves and then also for them. But they just sometimes flat out refused. You know, they took us out to lunch and to dinner. And whenever they got a chance, sometimes they refused. And whenever they got the chance, they just they paid for everything um, pretty much. And also the way that they received us uh, to ministry. They've got a, a, a big church there um, in the city. And because we were there, they called together all of their leaders one night um, for a worship session, and they just gave us an open open floor to minister. So see us from our from our Stellenbosch congregation was with us, and he ministered um, to them. And it was amazing. Like, I could really see that evening um, people receiving from God. Like, they were hungry, um, and they were open. And I believe part of the reason why they trusted us so much was because we came with with, with Johnny. Um, and because they trusted him. And that evening afterwards, uh, they prepared dinner for us. And we all sat around a table and ate dinner. And at the end of dinner, um, Sergey, who doesn't speak any English, through an interpreter, um, you know, he just stopped and he said, you know, Johnny, um, when I started this church quite a few years ago, you organized that Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa uh, provide me with $100 a month, which was like, what, 1,000 thousand rand. And um, that $100 allowed me to feed my family, 
while I was planting this church. And I'll always be thankful for that. And um, he went, the next part I didn't catch so great what he said, but he went on to say something along the lines of, you know, years from now we're going to look back and we're going to say we were those people sitting in Ukraine who opened ourselves to God and allowed him to build a legacy through us. And when I look at that church, I, I can see the favor of God on them, the blessing of God. You know, there are some very practical things like it's going financially, it's going very well with them in the midst of, of a very tough environment. But not just that. I mean, it, we were privileged to experience just the, the family and the unity in that church. They, when they got their church building, um, they didn't get anyone in from outside the church itself. If you could do plumbing, you came in, you did the plumbing. They set up their own walls. They decorated it themselves because it's their church. They've got like, and it's, it's, it's their community. They're, they're like a family. And it was amazing to experience that. And I believe part of the reason why they do experience the favor of God is because they got this honor thing right. Right? They honor him, Johnny, not because they want to get something back, but just because they are thankful. They're thankful for the work and the sacrifice that he made years ago um, to go over there and to impart in their lives. And you know, the thing is, I, th- I think our generation is, is really skeptical of authority, and I completely understand why. Because we've seen it abused so many times, right? I mean, the whole. Ukraine is such an interesting place because you see the remnants of communism. And communism in itself, the teachings of Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche, was basically saying that authority is being abused, therefore we're going to reject it and we're going to create a, a society where there is true equality and there's no authority that, that, that's kind of hammering down on us and abusing its power. And they do that and what happens? Exactly the same thing. Again, you've got an abuse of power and you've got the poor struggling and the poor suffering. And I believe that the answer to the abuse of authority is not the rejection of authority, but the proper use of authority. That God calls us not to live in a, in a, in a state of, of no authority because the Bible says that all authority is from God. He's the one that appoints authority naturally and spiritually. And I believe it's not that we are called to reject authority, but to properly use it, to, to redeem it. Um, and its use. And I think we can only do that when we see that Jesus is the perfect example of that. Because the centurion left Rome, lived among the Jews, learned to love them, and he had the servant, and he chose to use the authority which he had been given, not to, to further himself um, in position or, or to benefit himself, but to get help for his servant who was completely helpless and needed to get him to where he needed to be to be healed. But Jesus left heaven. And he came to earth. And he used ultimate authority. Because he has. He has ultimate authority. Not, and he came not to be served, but to serve. And eventually, he sacrificed himself on the cross. So that we can be reunited with the one who can heal us, not just physically, but also spiritually, mentally, emotionally. And even though the the centurion built a synagogue for the Jews, Jesus is building us into a temple for God, into his very dwelling place. You see, we are the needy servant, and Jesus is the good master. And it's only when we see that, and when we understand that, that we can be liberated And truly free 
to use the authority that he's given us for his glory. I just want to in, invite you to respond to two specific um, groups of people. The first is maybe you're here, maybe you're here today, and just like the Jewish elders, you've been believing a, a gospel of works, a theology that's based on, on works, and you've thought that to get into God's good books, I need, I need to do something. And if I do the right things, I will receive the right things from God. You know, Henny had such a, a great illustration at, at Legacy on, on Friday night where he talks about the prodigal sons. And there were two sons in that story. The one went to his father and basically said to him, I don't care if you die, give me, give me my inheritance. And, and he went and he squandered it. He didn't want the father, he wanted the stuff. And we go, oh, that's the prodigal son. But eventually he repents and he comes back. And there's another son that's outside the house. And when he sees this, he doesn't want to come in. And his father goes to him and says, come and celebrate with us. And he says effectively exactly the same thing. All these years I've been slaving away and never have you given me anything. Both sons were not after the father. They were after his stuff. And the thing is, what does the father respond to him? He says, all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. Come in and celebrate with me. And if you're here this morning and, and you just need to come back to that place with God, or, or maybe you have believed that, that it's your effort that's going to get you into his good books, I've got good news for you. <laughs> There's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. Yeah. It's a free gift. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's, our works are like, are like dirty rags in front of them of him and the beautiful thing is when we realize that we do start changing we do have good works but it's not because we do it out of a place of trying to earn god's favor it's because we do it out of a place of thankfulness that he has already given us like the bible says everything that pertains to life and godliness and the second group of people is if you're here this morning and you just want to consecrate your authority to god all of us have been given certain levels of and, and differing levels of natural authority and as well differing levels of spiritual authority. But if you just want to come and you want to consecrate that authority to God and say, Lord, I recognize that this, you know, like, like any said, that everything that I have, um, I've received from you, including the positions, including the gifts and, and, and the spiritual gifts that you've given me. And I just want to consecrate that to you again this morning. I also want to invite you forward so that we can pray with you and that we can, you know, that we can trust God, that he'll really sh show you the authority that he has given you and that, that we will all be able to use it for his glory because our world really needs it. We need authority to be redeemed. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.